The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 76 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, along with my co-host, former Secret Service agent, Annie Vanillo, and the chief security officer of BitGo, Tom Pageler. Gentlemen, how goes it this evening? Hey, man, great, George. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, buddy. Looking, I'm really excited for the, having the, this guest on today. Hey, I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own and nothing my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So great episode last week with the Vice President of Beryllium, Ben Brooks. Uh, you know, Tom, I, I love supporting veteran businesses. I mean, this guy's, these guys that work with this company, they're true heroes. And I really love what Ben Brooks is doing with his Cyber Warrior Foundation. This is what Task Force 7 is all about. Oh, absolutely. And you know what's awesome, too, is that he's straddling both sides, you know, private and public industry, getting people in there who, who are just seeing you know, what we're doing on that front and then, you know, applying some stuff to private. What, what an awesome guest to have. It was a good time last week, too, Andy. I think it's great to hear from Tier 1 cybersecurity professionals like Ben you know, and look, there's not a lot of folks out there that have this kind of background and experience and, and a professional and life experience. There's not a lot of people out there that have it. And he gave some great advice to people who are not cybersecurity professionals who don't do this for a living, right, who aren't engaged in this every day on how to protect themselves and their families from cyber, cyber criminals that we deal with on a regular basis. I know, right? It's always great to get perspectives from folks that have been so close to the threat, right? And we think, you know, in this community, that's like a really key component of being successful, right? And he, he did such a great job of bringing that home for us last week. <clears throat> so last week was RSA Recovery Week. That's what I like to call it. It's RSA Recovery Week. And I, I suspect this week, folks, uh, will start getting back to normal. At least I, I hope so. Almost every conversation I had last week started with some sort of statement about suffering from an RSA hangover. So I feel like RSA is like a three-week process. It's like one week of prep before the, 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 the conference, and then there's the week of the conference, which is completely nuts, right? And then the week after, everyone's just like dragging. It's like, oh, you know, it's, 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 you know, I'm just recovering from RSA. I must have heard that a million times. So it's really like a three-week process, and to some degree, I suspect people are already thinking about getting hotel rooms for next year. You guys know when the – did they pronounce the dates yet for next year's conference? When does that come out? Does anybody know? 
Actually, they, I, but I bet yeah, you they're already check. planning. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're definitely already planning, and I, I'm pretty sure they're out, but uh, I'd have to look. Airbnb at, out my garage, make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so I dropped a March 2019 Encore episode of Task Force 7 Radio last week, and Look, it's one of the most it's 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 one of the most listened to episodes ever in Task Force Seven Reddit history. I think it's rated number ten actually out of uh, the seventy three episodes that we have. It's called the Cyber Conundrum and how do we fix cyber security? It's with special guest, the Chief Information Security Officer of Turner, Peter Cronus. Now Pete came on the show to talk about why we need a cybersecurity moonshot to create new comprehensive strategies to improve information security in the digital age. Right, so everyone's going through this digital transformation. He's got some really, really cool things to say about it. If you haven't heard it yet, folks, this was a really great show with a very well-respected tier one guest who just happens to be the chief executive for information security for one of the largest companies and most influential companies in the world. So it's great guest to have on the show. Uh, he just wrote a book called The Cyber Conundrum, and it's a great read. Uh, if you haven't heard the show yet, it's at the, the top of your TF7 episode library right now. That's the March 2019 Encore episode of Task Force 7 Radio, The Cyber Conundrum, How Do We Fix Cybersecurity? With the CISO of Turner, Peter Cronus. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Well, we finally did it. I just updated the episode library on our new website at tf7radio.com. I know I've been saying it for weeks. But it's all updated right now. It should be all there. All the episodes are, are, are uh, in the TF7 radio history. And so that's really the most important thing about the website is that you can listen to the show. So I anticipate that it will be updated regularly now and on time immediately after the live airing of the show. That happens on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So, And I'm also working on updating the rest of the, of the website. We want to make this your go-to site for TF7 radio listeners. because. We really want to start interacting with you more. We want to start interacting with our audience in a more meaningful way, right? So especially in anticipation of the TF7 network being launched. And if you go to our website and hit the subscribe tab at the top, right, it takes you to a page with a list of all the TF7 radio playback mediums. And it also gives you the option to subscribe to the show right from the TF7 website, which is the best way to go, really. It's the best way to get, you know, connected and stay connected to the TF7 family. So. This way, you'll get all your TF7 radio updates right from the site, and as the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 extras and encore episodes like the one we just posted last week that you might have missed in the past, and then you also other Task Force 7 news and events and information on the TF7 network as well. So if you want to see where TF7 radio is around the net, the easiest way to do it, of course, is just to Google us. Uh, we come up. we got great uh, SEO. Just check us out, TF7 radio playback at your convenience. 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. Love it. Love when you subscribe, folks. So we have another great show for you this week. The Chief Information Security Officer of Highmark Health, Omar Kowaja, is going to be on the show with us this evening. So Highmark Health, just so you know, is an integrated healthcare delivery and financing system employing more than 35,000 people and serving over 50 million Americans. So it's a very sizable company with a huge responsibility. And Omar spent the last 15 years delivering and developing and managing security solutions for startups and service providers, as well as consulting firms and large enterprises. So prior to Highmark Health, 
Omar was at Verizon Enterprise Solutions, where he had responsibility for their portfolio of security solutions with customers in 72 countries. For this work at Highmark Health, Omar was recognized as the CISO of the year in 2017 and a fair business innovator in 2018. He currently serves on the boards of Health Information Trust Alliance and Action Housing. He is the chair of the governing body of Avanta. He is one, on, one of a member of the CISO working group of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. He's also an advisor on a few startups. He's an adjunct faculty member and to the Chief Information Security Officer program at Carnegie Mellon University. And he's got a BS in electrical engineering from Georgia Tech and an MBA from the Darden School of Business, University of Virginia. It's my pleasure to introduce to you, Omar Kawaja. Omar, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to, it's great to be on. Good morning. Hey, I'm really glad that you came on with us this evening. I know you're a busy guy and you have quite an accomplished career. This is quite a resume that you have here and I like to make sure that I spend some time on it introducing you to the audience because they should really know uh, the quality of people that we have on this show. I'm really glad to have someone of your caliber and experience here to speak with us. By all accounts, you're like a total rock star in the space. So how did you get into the cybersecurity business? You know, it's, um, it's really simple. As I, as I trace back my steps, I don't think there was a point in my career before I got into cybersecurity that I said, I really want to get into cybersecurity. And when I got into cybersecurity, I don't think that there was a point in my career, if I'm honest with, uh, with myself and with you, that I said, I really would like to run a security program for a sizable organization. It, um, I sort of stumbled through it and I got my degree in electrical engineering and a lot of the things that we talked about had not changed in 30, 40, 50 years, including the notes that many of my professors uh, used to teach the class. And then we had some classes in telecom and I said, this sounds really exciting. And it was, you know, the late nineties. And at that time the telecom boom was happening. So I said, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go focus on this side of, of electrical engineering because this is new and exciting and changing. And I did that. And then I went and worked at Sprint. I worked at a startup and at that startup, I got into the networking space and that seemed pretty exciting and interesting. But after a while you, spend enough times with routers and switches and firewalls and you feel like, okay, this is, this is interesting, but there's gotta be, there's gotta be more to learn because I've kind of figured a lot of this stuff out. And then I looked at the first intrusion detection system that we, the organization got. And I said, you know, this is going to take me some time to figure out. And then we had the next technology and the next technology. And I said, you know, this stuff sounds really interesting. So I kind of left the networking world and moved into the world of networking. And then after a while I said, I've, I've worked on plenty of technologies and learning yet another technology isn't nearly as exciting anymore. And I want to go do something different, which is when I went to Verizon and said, you know, I, let me leave the technology world, move on to the business side of the world. And I got a role doing um, technical marketing. And so I did that for a while, did a little bit of uh, consulting services. We, uh, it was very, very exciting times because every couple of years, either uh, we, every couple of years we were going through and acquiring a, uh, a security startup. And so the culture was changing, the product set was changing. There was a lot of growth. And for my last few years there, honestly, nothing, nothing major happened. We hadn't gone through an acquisition and I got bored and the Highmark Health opportunity came about and I said, you know, I've figured out, I spent a lot of time on the service provider side, on the business side and sales enablement and marketing and product management, creating products. I've never really run 
a sizable security program. So when that came about, I said, that sounds exciting. So honestly, my career trajectory, if there is a common theme is I'd get bored and want to try something different. So it's amazing to me that, you know, whenever I talk to someone in these chief information security officer positions, that it's never really a straight line, to, you know, to the, to yeah. the getting to the pinnacle, right? It's always, you know, a lot of pivoting and a lot of, uh, a lot of change in your, in, in your career. No, that that's, uh, that's absolutely right. I don't think there is, you know, a set path that you say, you know, you got to do A, B, C, and D, and then you'll finally be at uh, B at C. So it, kind of um uh, it, it's got it's uh it's a series of s curves like our, our ceo says anytime you're trying to get to something uh trying to get to something strategic and meaningful there's there's almost never a straight line to uh, to get there yeah that's a great point omar right and, and you know you and i've had so many conversations over the years and you know we, when we work together at verizon and even now as we transition throughout our career you know george you know omar is one of those guys where i always felt like you know, man, he brings a very diverse perspective to the problem because of the business side, the technical side, the marketing side, right? So you can bounce questions off of him and, and man, he helps, you know, zone in. So for the audience out there, right, find that person that can help mentor you, find that person that can give you a different perspective. Omar is one of those people uh, for me. I appreciate that, Andy. So look, you know, I was reading, go ahead, Tom, you got something? No, I was just saying, Andy, you, you've done a lot of the same for me over, over the years, the uh, unique perspective you bring. And, you know, that, that's spot on. I think diversity is such a big part of being successful. And whether you're trying to become a CISO one day or being a leader, doing something meaningful and, and having, uh, having strong influence in any area, you know, that advice that, uh, Andy, you shared is, is, is spot on. You want to find people with different perspectives. If you get a group of four people together and they all have the same perspective, well, you don't need the other three or you don't need the other two. Just two of them can have that dialogue and they can be mirrors to each other. But if you really want to do something exciting and you really want to drive change and you want to do something transformational, you've got to bring different perspectives together. And, you know, that's even something that comes to light. Even as I look at my direct reports and their direct reports, the one thing I'm always looking for is, you know, if they're all the same, then what's, what's the point? And that could be from a gender standpoint, that could be from, you know, even even a race standpoint that could be from a religion standpoint, but that's obviously also true from an experience standpoint. You want some people that are tenured, you want people that are less tenured, you want people from um, the armed forces, you want people from uh, you want people from the private sector, you want people from the nonprofit sector, and you want to put them together and you want to see what they come up with because the whole really has to be significantly greater than the sum of the parts. You know, Omar, I think you're right. Uh, I worked at uh, a lot of international companies, and I think the companies that have an international footprint just see things better, as in they have representation from different countries, which just operate differently. So, you know, for example, I worked at Visa, and we were rolling things out that might have gone successfully in the U.S., but maybe not as successful in Asia or Europe or EMEA or, you know, the Caribbean, whatever it would be. But having that representation and someone saying, no, this, this would not be accepted or this, this is not yeah. the culture or, or they, they want the security and they're okay with this. They don't need privacy, but just different things. I, I think you're absolutely right. It, you know, it, it really is. I'll, I'll give you an example. He does, um, um, George was introducing Highmark Health. The thing with Highmark Health is we have health in our name. On the one hand, we are a healthcare company because we have hospitals and physician offices. Um, on the other hand, we're also a financial services company because we have five insurance companies. On the other hand, we're also a retail company because we have close to a thousand retail locations. 
And so when we think about how to solve problems, it's really, on the one hand, it's a struggle and it's a challenge because we have to figure out how to solve problems and we can't say, let's just go look at what healthcare is doing or let's just go look at what retail is doing because there's no single box that we fit in. And that struggle, that process is what Stephen Covey refers to as sharpening our saw. And we're always thinking about how do we sharpen our saw. So, you know, I was, I was just thinking about the, the, I guess, the stress that most CISOs uh, undergo. I was reading an article last week, and I can't remember where the article was, but it was just mentioning about the, the CISO position becoming one of the most stressful positions that you can have, one of the most stressful jobs that you can have in America. And, you know, it used to be, well, probably still is, obviously, you know, law enforcement and some other jobs that are yeah. just very stressful, right? But, I mean, I got to ask you, I mean, what does your typical day look like uh, that, you know, that you're constantly having to solve all these problems? I mean, what do you, what do, you do? What, how's, the, how's, the, how's your day kick off and what does it look like? Sure. So, um, so maybe I'll, I'll start with, um, with my evening and then I'll, I'll move, to my, move, to, move to the rest of the day. So when I get home at night, and I typically try to be home um, by 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night, just, just, uh, just in time to catch the tail end of dinner and be able to put my daughters to bed. Um, uh, and when I step into, when I step in out of the garage and into the home, I sort of have to turn everything off. And that's not just in a physical, in an electronic sense of turning off my devices, but it's also switching my mind to say, I'm no longer at work. I now have to be with my family because that is a very, very serious of responsibility for me. And to do that, I know this is gonna sound really, really corny, and, uh, but I'll say it anyway, even though this is being recorded. I actually come home and the first thing I do is I yell happy birthday every day. And I do that because it puts me into a different mood and no matter how bad my day's been, I think my responsibility to my family is I've got to uplift them and I've got to make their day better and exciting. And it feels like those two words get everyone in a very different mode. And then my family comes to me, especially my daughters, and they're like, is it my birthday today? Is it my birthday today? And that's kind of how I start the day. And at that point, I've forgotten about any emails. I've forgotten about any of the day, any of my incidents, audit issues, customer issues, employee people issues, technology issues. I've forgotten about everything. And I will not go check email at night. Um, and I learned that that was huge. When I would be on email right before I went to sleep, I just wouldn't sleep as well. And my team knows and um, my boss knows if they need me, they can send me a text. Of course, I will be checking texts because stuff does happen late at night. And what I tell myself is if I'm really worried about something, I could get up at five in the morning and work on it. If I've got extra work to do, maybe I've got a big presentation, I've got to get ready for something, I've got an employee event coming up, I've got to think through something, I could get up at four. If I've got a combination of those, I could get up at three, I could get up at 3.30, but the moment I'm putting, I put my head down, I come into, the, come into my home, I have to forget about everything and I'm not gonna start rethinking about it until 3.30 or four in the morning. And so the ability and having that discipline to turn things off, has been something that's really served me well. It probably took me about two, two and a half years to figure out how to do that. Um, so that's, my, that's how my morning starts then. I'll start at home maybe for a couple of hours, catch up on email. That's my favorite time to do my email, as my team will tell you. 
and um, to catch up on work, if I've got to put some presentations together, if I've got to read some white papers to get ready for something, I'll do that. I'll get my daughters up, I'll um, uh, make them breakfast, take them to school, and then I get to work. Typically, I'll take a meeting or two along, um, along the way, or if I don't have a meeting or something, I will just have that sort of a good time for me to just have um, silence, or I'll use about half of my commute time to listen to a podcast just to get upskilled on something that I feel I'm not, um, I'm not smart enough on. And then my whole day is pretty much um, is meetings. So my meetings typically start at around 7.30 or 8, and they go at least until 6 o'clock. And, you know, my typical day is about 14, 15 hours of uh, 14, 15 meetings. Um, um, I, I have, uh, it used to be that a lot of my meetings were focused on technology and focused on projects. I've shifted that. So the number one thing that uses up my time on my calendar, if you were to audit my calendar, is uh, one-on-ones with my own team. So I'll have one-on-ones with my direct reports. I'll have one-on-ones with my skip level with my managers, I'll do something called Ask the CISO sessions, which is me meeting with the individual contributors across my team and actually even beyond my team. And last year I did 42 of those uh, Ask the CISO sessions because the one thing I was realizing early on is I thought things were going one way, my team felt a very different way and there was a very big disconnect. And I said, I absolutely can't have that. I have to know exactly what's going through my mind because if I'm running the program, I've got to figure out what's happening um, at, the, uh, at, the, at the ground level. And the Assisi Social Sessions have, uh, have helped me do that. So when you wake up in the morning, I think you know, one of the, the, I guess, biggest indicators of success and successful people is that they read a lot, right? I know that I know Tom and Andy and I all, all read a lot. I read a couple hours a day just to keep up with what's going on in this industry. Everything's changing really fast. And I was wondering, where do you get your news from? Like when you wake up, when, you're, when you want to read about cybersecurity events and cybersecurity issues that are, that are happening, like current events, like where do you get your news from? Do you go to social media? Do you go to a certain website? You know, I'll, I'll be honest. I have, um, I have not done a lot of social media simply because um, social media by its very design is intended to be addictive <laughs> and it can easily take over and I am um, I guess I probably wouldn't have the discipline to not have social media take over my life now I'll do some <laughs> LinkedIn every now and then right. but I will I will try to stay away from the others because from my standpoint you know if something just happened at my level it's okay if I don't find out about it for six hours eight hours ten hours or even 24 hours now if I'm working in the security operations center at Highmark I better know about it within minutes of it happening. So early on when we didn't have a robust security operations center and uh, threat intel and those capabilities, I felt like I needed to stay up to, on, stay up to speed on what's happening. But now I'll find out about something and typically it's two, three, four hours um, after that I you know, would have checked my email or seen an update and I'll go to my team and say, hey guys, you guys need to investigate this. And they'll say, hey, we started investigating this like six hours ago or yesterday. And to me, that says that's the way it should work. As a CISO, I shouldn't be on top of what's happening every minute. That level of um, granularity is probably not okay because I really need to be looking at the big picture. I need to be looking at the uh, longer term. So I need to have a telescope and I need to have a wide angle lens. I don't need to have the microscope or the magnifying glass. That's what my, that's what my team should be doing. So what is the biggest challenge that you have today uh, in your estimation at work? 
that, that that's a good question, George. I, I'd say, you know, my biggest, um, my biggest challenge, the thing that probably keeps me, that keeps me up at night in a, in a general sense is, is what's true for, for most leaders, not just for cybersecurity leaders. Ultimately, one of the definitions of being a leader is a leader is someone that provides direction and the way that we provide direction, which is exactly what the word leader means, is we make decisions. That's actually where the rubber meets the road for what leadership is all about. At the end of the day, you could boil it down as a constellation of decisions that a leader makes while they're in that, uh, in that leadership role. And so what keeps me up at night is, am I making the right decisions? And initially it used to be that my decisions were all based on my gut. And when decisions are based on gut, it's hard to tell, are you making them right or are you making them wrong? And if they were wrong, what did you need to change as part of your decision support? What assumptions did you make and rely upon that turned out to not be correct? And so I've really worked hard to take that decision support process, transfer it from my gut into something like Excel, which I could sit to get, sit down with my leadership team and say, this is how we're making decisions. These are the assumptions you're making. And instead of be, my, the decisions being based on the wisdom of Omar, now they're based on the wisdom of, a larger set of folks, which makes me feel significantly better because I do want them to push back on me because I'm not going to be right nearly as often as us collectively as a leadership team are going to be right. And then also testing them with folks outside of my organization with fellow CISOs and others. Um, and, and then now you've got things like FAIR, which is, a, which is a framework for being able to quantify risk that takes it even to the next level to say, this is how we're making decisions, this is how we're calculating risk, and if the number is wrong, it's because one or two or three of the inputs, the assumptions made, are likely in, inaccurate, so just go update those, and then you'll end up with the right answer. So having sort of uh, an algorithm underneath versus it being pure gut. Now, that's not to say that you can do everything, you can replace your gut with an algorithm, but it sort of has to straddle the two. And you know, we just had this session um, earlier this week. We brought in one of our decision support experts from outside of um, the security organization. I sat down with my portfolio advisor and me, and we went through our items, our list of initiatives, and we said, how do we figure out which one of these to do or not do? And we had a phenomenal discussion. We talked about you know, when our gut and the Excel algorithm are both calibrated and are both coming up with the right, with the same or directionally similar answer or sense of priorities, then we're in a pretty good place. And that's kind of what we got to, but it took several iterations to get there. So every day you're implementing, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of these controls in your environment. And if you had to identify the single strongest control in your security program, what would it be if you could do that? You know, that, that one's easy. And, and unfortunately, I don't think we're doing enough of it. But the single strongest control that we have uh, is in my data protection service area. And that's the control that says we're destroying data or we're archiving data. And if you think about everything else that we have, and we probably have four or 500 different controls, those are all about... Um, but detecting, in some cases preventing, in some cases responding to things, and a lot of them aren't just focused on the data. The vast majority, majority of the controls are in fact protecting the infrastructure, the applications, or the people, but ultimately for us as primarily being a services-based organization, the data is what's more valuable than anything else. And if 
we can take that data that no longer has business value and we can securely destroy that data, then the, the risk associated with that data is, is eliminated. So if there is such a thing as an absolute, secure, absolute security control, it would be the secure destruction of, um, of data that is no longer uh, being used by the business. So, you know, people are always saying that the, the weakest link in cybersecurity is people themselves. Do you see people as the weak, weakest link here in your information security program, or is there something else that you identify as a, as a stronger problem or bigger problem? George, that, that, that's a good question. And, you know, the data would likely, would likely support exactly, exactly what you said, which is if you look at the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report, if you look at the data from Health and Human Services and OCR, they talk about the breaches within healthcare that impacted at least uh, 500 or more records of protected health information, or you look at your the cyber underwriters and they've got data on uh, insurance claims for cyber incidents, and in each of those reports, they do take a take a, they do attempt to identify the root cause. And what you find consistently in the world of healthcare is human error is more often the root cause than any other single uh, any other single root cause when it comes to incidents in the world of healthcare. So. From that, the conclusion would likely be, and it would be a fair conclusion, that you know, if we could address and solve for the people, then a lot of these incidents would, would go away, and that's true. On the other hand, if we did enable the people, we did arm the people, we did instill within them the appropriate level of security conscientiousness, then you know, on the one hand, we've been thinking of them as the biggest liability on the cyber risk balance sheet. Um, if we invested in them and trusted in them and had confidence in them, I really, really believe that they could turn into our biggest asset on the cyber risk balance sheet. Okay, guys, we've got to transition to a commercial break right here. But hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited for network. We're going to solve some problems together. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes, and then we'll be right back with the Chief Information Security Officer of Highmark Health, Mr. Omar Kawaja. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology 
to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, Consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. The rules of enterprise security have changed. Your employees work remotely. Their devices access corporate data in the cloud. Phishing and other threats are intensifying. Traditional perimeter-based security is no longer enough to keep your enterprise safe. You need a new approach that protects your organization from the outside in. Lookout Post Perimeter Security enables protection at the endpoint and establishes continuous conditional access to data based on risk so you can protect your mobile workforce against phishing and other new world threats. Now you can secure the post-perimeter world. Visit lookout.com forward slash task force seven to learn more today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. 
We're back with our special guest for this evening, the Chief Information Security Officer of Highmark Health, Mr. Omar Kowaja. So, uh, lots of discussion here on the break, Omar. I mean, I know that the healthcare industry is a highly regulated industry, and the regulators have a significant amount of influence over the information security posture of any company that actually deals with healthcare data. You mentioned that you're a healthcare company, but you're also a retail company as well. So when you're dealing with both these you know, security and risk influences, and also you're dealing with these regulatory influences, how do you reconcile all that together? How do you align the two? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, in our early, my earlier days with the organization, we, we spent a lot of time working on compliance. And we're, when I looked at the different controls we had in place and the ones that were missing, it felt pretty clear. We did the things that the auditors and the legal teams told us we had to do. And if they didn't tell us we had to do them, we just didn't think they were important enough to do them. And so over the years, we've tried to pivot the program from saying, uh, let's just be compliance-based to be much more risk-driven. Now, that's not to say we don't care about compliance and we don't care about the requirements and the expectations that come to us from our regulators and from our legal teams and, for that matter, from our customers as well. Uh, however, we increasingly want to be seeing that as the, as the ground that we walk on. That's the, that's the floor. The risk-based stuff is really what we are reaching for. And if you think about that, that metaphor works because the ground that we walk on is really, really important. If we don't have a place to stand, there's definitely not going to be anything that we can reach for. But on the other hand, the ground that we walk on is something we take for granted. It's just there. We don't spend a lot of time on it. We just expect it to be there. That's how we want compliance to be. We want it to be a given. We want it to not be something we aspire to. We want it not to be something that we spend a lot of time and effort on. It's just there. And part of the reason that it's there is because it gives us some strong support to figure out where we want to reach out, uh, we want to reach out to. And I say that because uh, in all my years of having to deal with, work with regulators and work with our customers, I've very, very seldom do I come across some, someone, and, and I can speak at least at least from a healthcare perspective and in my personal experience, uh, come across someone that's unreasonable. Whether that's our internal audit team, whether that is an external regulator, whether that's a lawyer, whether that's a uh, customer, a counterpart CISO of mine, almost always we can arrive at, here's what we're doing and why it makes sense, and let's not worry about prescribing security controls, let's worry about prescribing residual risk and risk posture. How we get at that shouldn't really be meaningful to that third party, that should be something that we should decide and we should figure out. And that's something that I want my team to spend more and more time on is how do we actually talk about the underlying risk? Because every regulator now and every auditor and every customer is now starting to realize that it is about risk and it's not just about did you have this control in place or did you not have this control in place? Hey, Omar, I think that's an uh, awesome point. I, I often tell people in my company, look, the risk-based approach is where it's at. That's what we need to do. We do compliance and, and obviously regulatory stuff because we have to, to be in a space or you know, for, to sell the customers. But I always tell people, think of it as like the test to show that we actually have um, the good security strategy, risk-based approach in, in our core because that's what's important. Um, one of the things I have a lot of trouble with is the bringing the right people into the company. So do you feel like, you know, how, how is it recruiting your security team? Do you feel like you're seeing attrition or are you, are you able to recruit talent? 
Yeah, so, so let me just, uh, maybe Tom, just uh, add to that point that you made and then I'll, I'll answer the question around, around talent. So, you know, and, and you guys have spent a lot of time uh, with Tom, you and Andy and George, especially when you were in the Secret Service in your past life doing investigations. One of the things that I, I found in talking to actually Andy in the past and many other investigators is that the reason breaches, the reason security incidents happen is almost always because there was something simple, something really rudimentary that got missed. The, pat the server wasn't patched, they forgot to turn off the internet access, they forgot to remove the admin access, someone went in and, and left the data on there when it should have been deleted. And if you think about what the compliance requirements and those prescriptive controls are, almost always there's a compliance mandated control that could have prevented that incident from happening. It's just where we run into a challenge is, the day the auditor or the the consultant shows up to assess you against whatever framework or regulation oftentimes the organization has those controls in place it's just the day the bad guy the hacker shows up those controls may not be in place and so it isn't that compliance could compliance didn't prevent the breach and compliance doesn't equal security it's that organizations are very seldom the actually compliant the day the breach the day the security um, the security incident actually happened. Um, I, you know, I think you're, yeah, I would say exactly. I mean, like, because like you said, it's just like a test, right? It's, 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 you're taking it at one time. You can't rely on compliance to be yeah. security. You have to be people to understand it's something you live and breathe every day. This is why you take risk-based, you know, uh, approaches. That's why you're constantly talking about. That's why you're constantly living, breathing, eating security, not thinking of, okay, compliance auditor came in, who got through that? Yeah. You know, what's exactly. get ready for next year? Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Exactly. If you think about being compliant every day, then you'll probably be okay. But if you think of compliance being once in a year event, then, then that's where we get into trouble. Well, and how much fun would it be for your team, too, to not have to worry about that, right? The compliance stuff is done. You know, you don't have to think about it. They could come in and, and do the really cool, innovative things that we want them to do, right, that make them, you know, really good uh, employees, you know, and keep Absolutely. your attrition rate down, right? Absolutely. And that, you know, goes to the question that you asked about, um, uh, about attracting talent. So, you know, the way that we attract talent is, a, first and foremost, we've got to have people on, on my team currently that are engaged and that are excited to be there because they are first and foremost our biggest ambassadors to the rest of the security community in, in the regions where, where we have, um, uh, where, where we exist. Um, one of the things that we actually measure is we do measure employee engagement. We do measure net promoter score, which is literally, would you recommend someone else to come work here. So we measure our employee net promoter score. And I could tell you um, a few years ago, our net promoter score was negative. And now our net promoter score is, is pretty decent, which means we actually have a measure that says people are willing to go tell their friends and family and neighbors and classmates and others that the Highmark Security Program is a pretty good and exciting place to be. And our goal was, you know, we're based out of Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania is how do we get to the point that we do have a little bit of a brand. We are known as the destination for security talent in Western Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh, and we're kind of there. We, we probably have one of the top two or top three security programs in the region, which is where we want to be. Now we just have to make sure we're not complacent and we're always working on how do we, how do we get better. And a large part of that is because we do focus on our employees and employee engagement. I mentioned earlier, if you were to do an audit of my calendar, I spend more times with my with my employees than I spend with, um, with anyone else. It could be lunches, it could be one-on-ones, it could be breakfasts, it could be town halls. 
But that to me is the single most important, uh, that's the single most important asset is um, within our organization is the, the right talent and making sure that they're in the, in the right places. And some of that goes to how do we reduce our attrition? A few years ago, our attrition was well in the 30%, uh, 30% range, and now it's less than 5%. It's because we had a strong focus on uh, making sure we understood what drives people, what keeps them excited, what doesn't keep them excited, fix the things that are annoying and frustrating. And what you find is when you simply ask your employees what you don't like and what's not working, they're not relatively difficult things to fix. They may take a little bit of time, but they're not really all that, um, all that complicated to fix. So Omar, I wanna ask you, you know, uh, we always talk about having the right telemetry to understand what's going on in your organization. And I really hate the word metrics, like in terms of metrics team, like this is the metrics team uh, sort of uh, situation. I, I, I think metrics is, is nothing without analysis and without the proper communication escalation and notification processes in place. So I like to think of it as a business analysis and reporting team. And that sounds much more interesting to people if you're looking at it from a career <laughs> perspective, right? But yeah. do you have like a metrics program or reporting program and, and how do you handle the analysis around it and make sure that that's communicated in the proper way to the people that are actually making the critical business decisions in your department? Yeah. And I think George, you're, you're right on the, um, having metrics is just a set of numbers. And uh, we had plenty of years where we were tracking a lot of metrics, but the tracking of metrics probably got us nothing more than a few extra spreadsheets stored on multiple hard drives, just taking up storage space and taking up people's time, but really no business value in terms of making the program more effective, more efficient, and making Highmark more secure. And so we shifted to the idea of it can't just be a metric, it's got to be a KPI. It's got to be an indicator of are we doing well or are we not doing well? Because just saying the answer is four, I don't know if four is good or bad. Is that is our threshold three and is our target six? So four is on our way or is our target one and we're already at four? Like what, what does that mean? And so having it support and almost inherently drive business decisions is really, really important. And picking numbers to measure uh, that really drive something that is important is key. We don't want to measure things just for the sake of it. We want to measure things that are going to actually inform the decisions that we make as leaders on the security team and across, um, across the business. Probably one of our, our very important learnings when it comes to metrics, and I'm, I'm almost ashamed to admit this, is when I, when I first took over this program, I remember thinking to myself, every CISO I've ever talked to struggles with metrics. You know, I'm an electrical engineer by training. I understand Excel. I understand this and math and how hard can this be? And, you know, within three months, maybe I'll be generous and give myself an extra three months. But in six months, I'm going to have this fantastic metrics program. And that's exactly what I was thinking of it as at that time is a metrics program. Six months later, I had something in place. I spent a couple of weekends on it. It was 47 things in an Excel spreadsheet. And I looked at it in awe and I said, this is, a week, uh, this is truly a work of art. The following week, I rolled it out to my team. And I said, guys, this is what we've been waiting for. I can't believe you guys couldn't come up with something like this. It only took me a couple of weekends. And here I am declaring mission accomplished. A year later, I go back and assess what that metrics program got us and that those uh, weekends that I invested into it and we got exactly zero. 
it wasn't being used to drive decisions. It wasn't actually being adopted. It wasn't actually being tracked. It was barely being updated. And if it was being updated, it was only because, hey, we're meeting with Omar. Let's make sure that we update the dashboard. That's not the goal of the metrics program isn't to please the CISO. And if it is, that's a pretty good litmus test for it not being successful. Yeah, a I mean, year later, we that's went, not it, we right? Went. It has to be like there has to be a bunch of key messages there, that and then yeah. metrics should just support the the findings, right? And the outcome exactly. analysis. That's all. And, really. And so you know, long story short, we went through that same iteration two, three, four times where we said we got it this time, we pressure tested it, failed. We said again, we got it, pressure tested, it failed. And probably my, my single biggest learning when it comes to measurement in the security program was that we were trying to build something that was going to serve every single audience we had. And the moment I had that realization, I said, I'm not gonna be able to come up with one dashboard, one set of measurements that I can use to drive, drive the business for every single audience that sort of helped me make the right decision. And so now I've got a set of measures and a dashboard that I show my board of directors. I've got another one that I show my executive steering committee. I've got another one that I share with um, our customers. And I've got another one, which is sort of another one that I share with the business to show how they're doing. I've got another one that I show IT how they're doing because they're a significant part of running the security program. And then I've got a master dashboard that I use for me. And I remember sharing this with someone and they said, who's this for? And who do you share this with? I said, no one. This one is just for me and my leaders. And we run this. And they looked at that and it's a based on a balanced scorecard. And they said, this is really awesome. You should show this to your board. I said, why would I show this to my board? They're not really concerned with a lot of these things. That's for me to do. But they said, it looks so good and it's so well thought out. I said, yeah, it is. But you know, there is, when it comes to metrics, the other important realization is that there are cockpit metrics and there are passenger cabin metrics. So I just flew from Pittsburgh to Seattle last night to, to be here on, on spring break. And if I went into the cockpit, looked at all of the metrics and all of the measurement that the pilot and the co-pilot are looking at, and I started pointing at gauges and asking them about stuff, I would drive the pilots crazy. And if I was somehow doing that while the plane was in flight on, right, uh, on route to Seattle, I would not only drive the pilots crazy, but I would probably endanger the safety of every single other passenger. If I'm in the passenger cabin, the only thing that I should care about are what is, am I gonna get there on time? How high are we going to be flying? Is there going to be turbulence? Am I going to be able to get up and pee? And is there going to be drink service? So, Omar, let me ask you. So, it, there's a lot of, you know, uh, there, we get a lot out of these programs if they're built the right way. And we know what we need to, you know, to know in terms of, you know, the KPIs and the KRIs that we put together, what they mean and how predictive they are and things like that. So, knowing this, like, what are the biggest challenges in developing a really robust business analysis and reporting program that makes sense of all the metrics around you in terms of what you're seeing and what you, what, what you have to adjust to in the future. So, you know, it starts by defining what you're trying to change and what you're trying to, what's your destination, what's the outcome you're trying to achieve. And once you've defined that, then you can go and double click on that to define what are the leading and lagging indicators to convey whether you're on route and headed in the right direction or you may be off track and headed in the opposite direction of where, where you need to be. Um, so for us, we said, we really care about our people and our culture. 
because we had a very high attrition rate and people were leaving. So we said, what are some of the measures that we can use to understand exactly how we're doing from a people culture standpoint? The next thing we said is we want to have really, really strong process. So how do we measure our process? The next thing we said is we really want our customers to be satisfied. So we've got to define A, who our customers are, and B, how to measure their satisfaction. And then lastly, we said we want to make sure that the business feels like it's meeting its objectives and we're meeting the business objectives when it comes to running a security program and supporting the larger business. And how do we measure metrics against that? And if we looked at those and we said, for any given area, everything was green, but it didn't feel green, then we said we may have picked the wrong metrics or maybe we set the bar too low. All right, I think we're gonna take a quick break right here because we're running a little bit over. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with the Chief Information Security Officer of Highmark Health, Mr. Omar Kowaja. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest for this evening, the Chief Information Security Officer of Highmark Health. Mr. Omar Kowaja. So Omar, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the Fair Business Innovator Award that you got back in 2018 uh, last year and what that was all about. What, what, how did you get that award? What did you do that was so special that got their attention? Sure. So, you know, we, um, a few years ago, we embarked on something called the ISRM, Information Security Risk Management Transformation. We said the way that the program was defined, the way that it felt, didn't, wasn't where we needed to be. We really needed to transform the security program, and we defined what the future state of that security program would look like. And one of the things we said is we wanted the security program to be risk-based versus it being much more compliance-based in the past. And at the time, we had no idea what it meant for it to be risk-based other than it just felt like the right thing to say, just like everyone wants to and um, uh, and uh, hunger and, and get to world peace, we said risk-based makes sense. And so then we look for what does it, what do, can we do to define risk-based? And we looked at a variety of different standards and approaches and frameworks. And when we came upon FAIR, we thought that that was a pretty good way of looking at risk. It was fairly simple to understand, but it also was something that had some rigorous math behind it, which we, which we liked. And ultimately, the thing that FAIR got us is two things. One is it gave us a language that we could use to, to talk to each other across the information security department and even with some of our key stakeholders outside of ISRM. And to us, as we said, we wanted a risk-based program. That sort of goes to culture. And it's difficult to create a cohesive culture without language. So FAIR gave us the, uh, the culture that we needed to become significantly more risk-based. The other thing that we got from FAIR is that FAIR gives you a way of being able to quantify risk. And, you know, if there is a silver bullet, if there is nirvana when it comes to metrics and measurement in the world of cyber risk, it would be to be able to boil all of your risk down to dollars and cents. And that sort of is the, uh, is the promise of FAIR. So speaking of risk, I think one of the biggest material risks that most organizations are dealing with today comes from their relationships with third parties. And, you know, I, we can do a whole segment, actually probably a whole month of segments uh, on this one topic alone, and we have done whole segments on third parties. But, you know, how, in your opinion, how do we come to an understanding of what level of scrutiny, what level of oversight is appropriate for different kinds of third parties that we have to deal with on a regular basis? Yeah, that, that's a good question, Jordan. You know, here I, I have um, some pretty strong opinions just because I've seen a lot of different approaches to third-party risk. Unfortunately, most of them failed. 
over the last 15 years. And I've seen some of those in the financial services industry and the healthcare industry, other sectors across the, uh, across the country. And, you know, the one thing that we just have to accept as a security community is that questionnaires have almost no utility. I would maybe even go further and say questionnaires actually have negative utility. If we got rid of questionnaires, we would actually end up being more secure than we are with questionnaires. And that's simply because if you look at the data over and over again and you compare the responses that came from questionnaires for those same organizations, you compare to the actual state of security controls and security program of those organization of those third parties, there's a pretty significant gap. And we might be better off just tossing a coin to figure out if someone actually has that control in place or not. So we've got to wean off this addiction that we have to questionnaires and this thinking that if I send someone a questionnaire and they respond to it, that's actually going to tell me something about their security program that's accurate and that's meaningful. And that's simply not the case. A good example is if a questionnaire says, do you encrypt data at rest? I could just go take a USB drive, plug it in, run TrueCrypt on it, encrypt it. And now I can answer very confidently that yes, I did, con I did encrypt data at rest once and therefore the answer is yes. You know, having some system that requires an accredited third-party assessor coming in, scrutinizing the controls, reviewing the evidence, looking at the data, looking at the logs, and doing that not just for a sample, but every single control, that's significantly better. But instead of it being the relying party, the enterprise paying for that and doing the audits, that should be something that the third party should do once, and then they should share that attestation or certification with... Um, with all of their customers, with all of their relying parties, that reduces waste and that significantly improves the efficacy of our third party risk programs. And that's kind of what we've been driving over the last few years with, uh, with high trust. And we went from a few of our, of our third parties being high trust certified now to well over several hundred of them being certified. And across healthcare, there's tens of thousands of, uh, of business associates, third parties for healthcare that are high trust certified. And, they we've we've eliminated a significant amount of questionnaires but we still have some left so i think you know everyone's sending out these questionnaires right everyone's using them and i think uh how they use them is important i think you're obviously they're a major tool in most third-party programs uh sometimes i question the the value of some of these uh, questionnaires it depends on how they're really structured i think and it depends on the prioritization of risk you determine predetermined with uh, each kind of customer, depending on what kind of uh, information they're handling from you, know, I shouldn't say customer, but um, business partner. Uh, in, in your estimation, you know, what is the value of, of using these questionnaires in, in context of managing third-party risk? Uh, you can't have the same questionnaire for everybody, right? Yeah, I, no, I think the value is very little, and and probably the easiest way for everyone to come to that conclusion is, you know, we have. In most organizations, they're structured such that you have one part of the organization that is sending these questionnaires to your third parties, and you have another part of your organization that's receiving these questions from these questionnaires from your customers. If you gave both of those functions to the same team, they would very, very quickly all pretty much come to the conclusion that, wait a minute, we know what it feels like to respond to these. And if that's how our, our third parties are responding to these, even if they did it with the same standard that we're responding to these, we'd very quickly realize this is not even worth the paper that they're written on. So Omar, 
I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to, you know, join us. I hope you come back again. I think I got a lot more questions for you. We just run out of time. <laughs> hey, uh, this was uh, this was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. All right, folks, it's, it's, it's time to bounce up out of here once again. But before we go, I want to remind our listeners, you can go to the Cybersecurity Hub, the Reader Recap of tonight's show, and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.